That song of blessing is directly from Numbers chapter 6, where the Lord commands the priests to speak that blessing over His people, and in so doing to place His name upon them. It's easy for us when we see such blessings in light of the messages that we receive so often from those who claim to represent God. It's easy for us to receive the message that it's about us. And it has never been about us. God's primary purpose, His primary priority is not my happiness or yours. It's actually His. God's primary goal for you is not your happiness, but your true blessing, your holiness, that you might know Him and belong to Him and reflect Him. Let's put to death once and for all the lie that God just wants us to be happy. I can think of no faster way to distort every part of Scripture than to see it through that lens. We sang of the faith of our fathers passed on to us that we would be true to that faith till death. We see in Acts 2 that from the beginning of the church, from its outset, that those who belong to Christ devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It is central, it is essential, it is crucial for us to take seriously God's word and the passing on of the faith. To teach each generation sound doctrine, a right understanding of the Lord, of ourselves, and of how those two things interact. As we read the Apostles' Creed earlier, that is the faith of our fathers, passed on to us that through that faith, that teaching, that doctrine, that we might know God. And in knowing Him, knowing His Son Jesus Christ, placing our hope, our faith, our confidence in Him, that we might have life in His name. Today's passage has a lot to do with legacy, succession. So much so that it's easy for us to miss what's really being said in the midst of it. But as it is about legacy and it is about passing on the things of God, I'd like to start by just talking about my dad for a minute. My dad was my hero. Many of you, most of you, I think, in here knew him. And, and uh, my dad was, uh, all I can say, he was my hero. I thought he was Superman. He was the strongest man I ever knew physically. And I wanted to be like him. But my dad was a flawed man. He was a good man by human standards. 
but he was a sinner. He was a faithful man who sometimes did unfaithful things. Who loved the Lord, but sometimes focused more on the flesh. As it turns out, I am like him. I love the Lord too. Sometimes I get caught up in the things of this world. I long to be faithful. But like my father before me and yours, I'm prone to sin. I'm bent toward it. And even when I think I've got it right and I've got it finally figured out, (laughs) I get caught up in the pride of thinking i got it figured out. And I realize that my motives are selfish. And even when everybody outside of me might think, boy, he's really doing well, (laughs) that just means you haven't spent much time with me. But if I've got everybody else fooled, there's a, a mirror inside that knows better. The mirror of God's Word makes it clear. Yeah, my dad was my hero. And my dad was flawed. Of all the memories that I have of my dad, and and there are many, memories of strength. and He was a fun dad. He was more fun than mom, truthfully. She she was the spiritual pillar in our family. Dad was strong. And he was consistent as much as a person's going to, a human's going to be. But of all the memories that I have, one stands out above everything else. You see, my dad didn't come into his spiritual maturity until I was already an adult. He was rather, uh, and I know, I know that right now, he's probably not listening because he's got better things to do right now. But I know right now my dad would absolutely agree with what I'm about to say. He was sort of a spiritual infant, good man, weak disciple for most of my growing up years. But after I left home and and, uh, my brother was in high school, I think Heidi was probably in college, she might have been in high school still. The Holy Spirit got a hold of my dad in a way that just, I'm getting a little bit off off topic with this because I'm just thinking of this revival going on in in some of these universities around the country right now in in Asbury and and, uh, Cedarville and Spring Arbor and, and some other places. We're seeing the Holy Spirit take hold of hearts. Not in, not in wild outbreak of, of utterances and experiences. Some of you might rem- remember some of the crazy things that went on in the 90s, and we've seen that throughout the centuries. But, but in an outbreak of the Word and in response of obedience and love, it, it, it's amazing. And, and that same thing happened in my dad. Uh, interestingly, it, it happened through a, what some people would run away from as a dry book. Uh, I think those who actually read it would disagree, did a study in J.I. Packer's Knowing God uh, with our pastor at the time, and, and it just captured him. You know, funny thing is, 
by the time my dad really got it figured out, shortly after that, the Lord took him home. It's going on 16 years now. And uh, my greatest memory of my father is probably when he was dying of cancer. Now that might seem strange. My memory of him is not of a man trapped in a body, laying in a bed, wasting away. Because that, that's not in my mind. I see those pictures and it saddens me. But my memory of that time is that was when my dad, excuse me, I, I knew that I was going to say these things, so I probably should have been a little better emotionally prepared. That was when my dad was strongest. I have never seen, I've been with a lot of people dying. I have never seen anybody die better. It was the best part of his walk. When things got hardest, his faith became most real. He finished well. That's what he passed on. When he was stripped of everything that seemed to the world like it mattered, all of the things that pass away including physical life, he was able to pass on a legacy far more significant and longer lasting than our centennial farm or memories of a good childhood or any of those things. He passed on the enduring faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is reflected in his life. More so then than ever before. I'm not trying to celebrate my dad. He was my hero. He could never be my savior. But despite his many failings, and my mom can tell you there were many, Unfortunately, those are the ways I probably took after him the most. He passed on something that mattered. He left a legacy. We see in Numbers chapter 20 something similar happening. If you have not already, I would invite you to open to Numbers 20. This is our third week in this short chapter. We have a short passage, but it sort of wraps up the scene that we see here. Now, we've broken it into three pieces because there are three distinct units of thought. Those of you who know how much I love when I discover a new word, know that I love the word pericope. I wish I had known it my whole life. It, was just, it just flows. It just rolls off the tongue. Everybody say pericope. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? It has nothing to do with the sermon. But because there are three 
pericopes, three units of thought here. We've, we've kind of broken it up. But really, we need to see them together. We need to see the whole package of what's going on in this scene. And, and as turns out, it doesn't always work out this way, but as it turns out, they're all contained in this chapter rather than, than running past it. Again, the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions, those aren't inspired of God. Those were added by editors to help us find our way around, kind of like the address on your house. But, but this story begins with the people returning to this place, this, this place Kadesh, very close to the entrance to the promised land. And Miriam dies, Moses' sister, Aaron's sister, she dies. You may remember Miriam is the one who, who uh, when Moses was placed in the river in the basket to, to be saved from Pharaoh's edict, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, it was Moses' sister Miriam who was nearby watching and came and, and presented, uh, presented Pharaoh's daughter with a nursemaid who happened to actually be Moses' biological mother, happened by God's divine intervention to be Moses' mother. And so he was Pharaoh's son, by, a grandson by adoption, but he was raised both in the palace and as a Hebrew. Wow, it's just it's mind-blowing. Miriam was a part of Moses' ministry before Moses even knew he had a ministry. And then, right after Miriam's death, the people are grumbling as they did just coming out of Egypt back in Exodus. They're grumbling because they don't have water. New generation, same old, same old. God tells Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, and the rock will gush forth water to water the entire nation and all their livestock. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses speaks to the people. Aaron is included in this, even though he's not mentioned in that particular narrative by name. God is including Aaron in it. Clearly, he's a part of it. Moses speaks to the people, rebukes them for their rebellion, seems to, in a sense, take credit for what God is doing, and then he strikes the rock with the staff that represents God's delegated authority to him. And God says, bad call. Because you've done this, because you didn't trust me enough, you didn't believe in me enough to honor me as holy before the people. You and Aaron, you're not going into the promised land. Now, he didn't reject them. He didn't, he didn't say, you'll be cut off from your people. He didn't strike them dead or swallow them up in the ground as he had with rebels previous to this. But their sin had consequences. They reacted to a situation and were overcome by the flesh. And in, in responding to the flesh, instead of doing what God specifically told them to do, they rebelled against God. You probably didn't know you could have an unconscious rebellion, but that's what happened. They failed to honor God as holy. So then we have this story that we looked at last week of, of God, God doesn't reject them as leaders like he does with Saul later on as the king. Moses then still leads the people. He's taking them to the promised land. He just can't go in with them. I'm going to get them right up to the finish line and then... God's going to stop this. The people cross the finish line, and Moses does not get to. Aaron does not get to. 
They get back to this place and, and they want to go in. So Moses sends messengers, ambassadors, if you will, to go to the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, a brother nation to Israel. Israel was Jacob's name after God changed it. Edom was another name for Esau. So Jacob and Esau had strife even in the womb. They passed on this legacy of strife. And now when the Israelites want to just pass through, hey, we're, we don't want to touch any of your stuff, we don't have any favors, just, just let us pass through. We, just, we won't drink your water, we won't, we won't you know, break your lamp, we won't mess your stuff up, you know, we won't even we'll take our shoes off on your carpet, all, we, just, we just want to get through, right? Nope, you can't, can't come through here. And uh, I can't get the image of Gandalf out of my mind. You shall not pass. Right? Comes against them with an army. Don't you dare come across here. So they have to go around. And the, the lasting legacy of sin's ongoing damage from generations, even centuries before, meant that God was still going to do what God was going to do. But now they had to take a circuitous route. It was more difficult than it needed to be. So we see the failure at, at uh, Meribah Kadesh, this, where the waters of strife or quarreling were. Then we see this, this lasting legacy, this lasting damage of strife between the, the brothers and between the nations. And then we get to this last section. Rather than tell you about it, let's just read it together. We're going to start with verse 22. Your Bible probably has a heading there that says the death of Aaron. And I would suggest to you that there's more going on here than merely the death of Aaron. But that is the centerpiece. Verse 22, I'm reading from the New International Version. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eliezer. Take them up to Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer. For Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the entire house of Israel mourned him for 30 days. Father, as we open your word together today, we ask that you would nourish us, nourish us by it. We don't live by bread alone, by physical sustenance alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. And you have given us this special revelation to reveal yourself and your ways to us in a way that nature never could. We see you in your creation, Lord. We see your invisible qualities, 
so that all of us are without excuse. And yet you have given us your law, your perfect law, that we might know you. So by your word today, Lord, help us to see what we could not otherwise see. Help us to know what we could not otherwise know and help us to become what we could not otherwise be. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we consider this section, just as, as we need to with all of it, we need to take a look at what, what's the melodic line? What, what is the, the tune that God is playing through the book of Numbers so that all of our understandings of the little parts harmonize with that? What's the core reality for the book of Numbers? And as we have discussed so many times, we see that that core reality is this, this statement below. Our unfaithful choices have consequences. But the Lord remains faithful to His promises. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. And we see that play out here, don't we? It, it's, it's pretty clear. There is a consequence to their particular sin here, to their failure. And because of that sin, they don't get to do the one thing they've been looking forward to most. Their whole lives, they've been looking for God's deliverance. Since they left Egypt, they've been looking forward to getting to the inheritance, the land of promise. What God had promised to them, what God had promised to their ancestors, all the way back to Abraham, they've been longing for that day. They just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, leading a rebellious people until all of the rebellious generation had passed away so that they could enter according to God's sentence to those who would die in the wilderness and His promise to those who would enter the land. And now, because of their failure, at the very door of that land, they don't get to go in. God doesn't reject them, but there is a consequence he remains faithful to His covenant promise. He has blessed them and He has kept them. He has made His face to shine upon them. He's shown them favor. He's been gracious to them. He has turned His face toward them. In other words, He's given a personal relationship to them. And He's brought them peace and in the midst of that, they were enamored of their own understanding, their own flesh. Their own temporary happiness seemed more important to them than what God was providing. It seemed more important to them than their connection with God Himself, which was always the point. Moses and Aaron, here at this, in this situation at the waters of strife, which is what Meribah means, strive for quarreling. They get caught up, just as the people did, in seeing everything that's wrong, their frustration with the rebellious masses, their, I'm sure they're impacted by the death of their sister, they're overcome in the moment and they forget themselves and they do what their flesh tells them instead of what God tells them. There's a consequence. But God remains faithful to His covenant promises. 
core reality today as we look through this is that the Lord strips us of what is passing to show us what is lasting. The Lord strips us of what is passing to show us what is lasting. That's what we see with what God does with Aaron here. Aaron has an earthly ministry. He didn't seek it. He couldn't seek it. It had to be given to him by God. Those who sought it without it being given by God, we saw a little while back in Korah's rebellion. God opposed them, swallowed them up and in the ground and consumed others by fire. You don't want any part of this priesthood if you're not invited. Aaron had this gift of God, but it was only for this life. Aaron made many mistakes along the way. He got consumed at various points with fear, weakness, jealousy. At the beginning, in the Exodus, Moses was afraid to speak. I, oh, Lord, I'm a stutter. I don't speak well. God says, in, in God's sovereign mercy and grace, he, he gives to Moses and Moses' weakness his brother as a mouthpiece. His brother gets to do the speaking for him. So Aaron then becomes the voice of God to Pharaoh. It's as if, God says, Moses is God. Moses, you're going to act in my place, and Aaron will be your prophet. He will speak your words as you speak mine. That's a pretty amazing ministry. Five minutes later, Aaron's making the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain. They get past that. He repents. He ministers before the Lord. God never rejects him, punishes him, never rejects him. Makes him a priest, gives him this special privilege that no one else can do. Aaron and his sons, his first two sons, in a tragic example, they kind of forget themselves too and they... They offer strange fire, if you have a King James background. They offer an unauthorized burning of incense before the Lord. And as they go to do that, fire comes out from, from the Lord and kills both of Aaron's two oldest sons. They had just been made priests. They had just been given the role. They do their thing instead of God's thing. It's over. He's got two sons left, or he's got Eliezer left in particular here. And later we'll see Phineas, his grandson. But Aaron has this up and down trajectory, right? It's, it's a roller coaster. After a time, Miriam seems to be the one speaking but Aaron's with her. They get jealous of Moses. They rebel against his leadership. Doesn't God speak to us too? It's a lot like what Korah will do later. And, and it's true in that Miriam was a prophet. Aaron spoke it as a prophet. He was the priest of God. He was the, the mediator, the go-between between the people and the Lord. He offered the sacrifices on their behalf to the Lord. He administered the Lord's forgiveness to them. He had to deal with his own sin first, but, but he 
represented the people to God and God to the people. They get past that. Now all these years later, we see in, in the silence, we see what appears to be faithfulness from him. And then failure at the rock. And yet, God is faithful. God is merciful. The Lord strips Aaron of this passing ministry so that Aaron can see what is lasting. It's amazing to me to see how lightly at this point in his life, as an old man, Moses dies at 120. I don't know how old Aaron is. Maybe I should, but I don't know if it's in there or not. Uh, He's older, apparently, and 120 is not a spring chicken, right? At this point in his life, as God has stripped away and is stripping away what seems so important, that ministry of the priesthood, Aaron holds it lightly. You don't read anything about him balking. There's no argument. It's as if he's saying like Mary did, be it unto me according to your word. Lord, whatever you want from me. I've I've bucked against you for so long. I'm done with that. I know how that ends. Whatever you want from me, Lord. When what was passing was stripped away, he was able to see what was lasting. Back in the 50s, a group of missionaries, college kids from from Wheaton College, uh, or just out of college, went down to Ecuador as missionaries. And uh, some of you may remember the the book, Through Gates of Splendor, that was about that. You may know Elizabeth Elliot, uh, who was a a very popular writer throughout the years since then. Her husband, Jim Elliot, uh, went down and they had devoted themselves to taking the gospel to these Alka Indians who were just known for their, their viciousness and, and uh, according to some reports, cannibalism. and you know, just, just, uh, Nobody had ever been able to make contact with them and survive. And they said, we're going. They need to know Jesus. So they dev- devoted themselves, and he and, and four others were killed in the process. Long story short, he in his journal, had had written a quote that became famous later on, rightly so. It it brought to mind for me this passage, and this passage brought the quote to mind. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's good advice for us. That's wisdom. When we leave behind the things that belong to this world, we're able to leave behind a lasting legacy that has significance for eternity. It lasts beyond us. Not like passing on your business. Eventually that business is going to mean nothing. Not like passing on your centennial farm. That's great. I love it. I love love the legacy we have there. But ultimately, it's of very little import. But passing on a legacy of godliness of faithfulness is something of eternal value all right let's uh, let's walk through this a little bit notice this you can fill these in in your blanks first we want to see in verses 22 to 24 failure isn't final but it is expensive 
Failure isn't final, but it is expensive. Notice in, uh, in the first few verses there, the whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh, came to Mount Hor. We don't know really much about Mount Hor. We don't know its exact location, only what, what we see here, that it's near Edom. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Now there are two really important phrases we need to see here in this section. First, gathered to his people. Next, because both of you rebelled. Right? So we need to recognize that failure isn't final, but it is expensive. God's mercy here has the final word. God uses the phrase, he'll be gathered to his people. Now you may, if you've been with us, you may recognize that there's another phrase that gets used for those who die because of their sin, who die under God's judgment. They are cut off from their people. They die under the ban, under the curse, under God's wrath. And we see that phrase used over and over for those who die on account of their sin. God strikes them down. They are to be stoned by the people. They are to be put outside the camp. They are to be executed. Sometimes God does it. Sometimes God has the people do it. But this idea of being cut off from your people is a death under God's judgment and wrath. But But the connotation of this being gathered to His people is one of welcome and comfort. That God is welcoming you into, the the Hebrew phrase was, the bosom of Abraham. So that you're going to the place of the dead, but you're doing this with God's face, as it were, turned toward you. This is a beautiful picture. Aaron failed, and there is a cost to it. It is expensive. It keeps him from the one thing that he has been been looking so forward to. (laughs) When I was a kid, my my brother and sister, I'm sure, will remember this. When When I was a kid, my mom was a real big Wizard of Oz fan. Anybody else Wizard of Oz fans? We used to have, you know, and some of you maybe did too, it was on TV every year. You remember TV, right? We had channels. Anyhow, uh, and so mom would have a big Wizard of Oz party every year. She became friends with the woman that played the Wicked Witch of the West, Margaret Hamilton, and had an opportunity to go down and and see her and meet her and get uh, autographs and all these different kinds of things. And uh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And so... I wasn't rejected as a son, but there was a cost. I didn't get to go. I don't. Jeff didn't get to go either, did you? I probably dragged him into that. It's probably my fault, and Jeff got in trouble for it. It's like Moses and Aaron, right? But uh, Heidi, of course, being the good kid, she got to go. So, you know how it goes. Failure isn't final, but it is expensive. There is a cost, and while. Aaron's failure cost him the opportunity to be gathered to his people after entering the land of promise. He still died with God's favor. He wasn't defined by his failure. 
When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. But, but when we get off of that path, when we get sideways of God, there is always a cost. Let's not allow a cheapening of the gospel to convince us that when we are forgiven of our sin, well, that's all there is, and everybody should just let it go. Don't, don't bring it up again. Don't talk about it. The Lord doesn't hold us against it anymore, but the cost remains. The wrath does not. The wrath for sin falls on Christ. And when we are in Christ, there's no wrath, no punishment left for us. That doesn't undo the daily consequences. Just as we saw last time, if I, if I you know, cut your arm off with a chainsaw, I can apologize, you can forgive me. you still got no arm. That's how it works. In the same way here, there's a cost. Failure isn't final, but it is expensive. Notice, secondly, in verses 25 to 26, God is sovereign in both justice and mercy. God is sovereign in both justice and mercy. I want you to see all three of these concepts. God is sovereign. That means He's in control. God does what God does because He's God. That seemed like a great place for an amen. God does what God does because He's God. Because He is God. He is the authority. If God does it, it's right. It's good. I don't get to judge God. I don't get to say, God, how dare you? Can the, potter, uh, can the pot say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? That's silliness. God is sovereign. But notice He's sovereign in justice. He's also sovereign in mercy. He decides the cost, the consequence. He also decides the favor, the mercy, the forgiveness. Notice what we see here in, in uh, verses 25 and 26. So <clears throat> they go up on the mountain, uh, and in verse 25 we see he, he tells them to get Aaron and, and Aaron's son, take them up, see what he's going to do? He's going to remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer and Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. In this act, two things happen. In the the transfer of the garments, two things happen that we're going to come to in in a few moments, but I just want to make sure you see it. The garments that represent the priesthood you can see more about that in Leviticus. Uh, there's a picture of it. We could see a, a picture later on, not related to the priesthood, but related to authority and the garments of authority uh, in Isaiah 22. We see it even in the book of Revelation. The garments that Christ wears represent something. If you were in the military, if you were in the military, you recognize that uniform means something. It stands for something. If you're a police officer or you're a firefighter, there is something unique when you put on that uniform. If you are an athlete, you know that that uniform means you don't play for yourself, you play for something bigger. Aaron has his uniform removed, symbolically saying, you no longer have this ministry. That's a hard consequence. He's going to die there. That's a hard consequence. But he 
takes that garment and he puts it on his son and Aaron gets to see this. Aaron gets to see his son receive that authority, receive that ministry. What a joy as a father, but I'm getting ahead of myself. God is sovereign in this. As, as Chuck read for us to open worship today in Psalm 24, only those who are holy, who have clean hands and a pure heart, may ascend the hill of the Lord. Now that, that term, the uh, ascend the hill of the Lord, refers in the psalm specifically to approaching the temple for worship. Long, long after this scenario. But in a broader sense, it refers to approaching the Lord, to a, a holy encounter with God. Who may approach the Lord? Who may ascend the hill? This picture of ascent going up the mountain is pretty common throughout this narrative. Moses goes up the mountain on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Aaron is taken up the mountain. God commands them to go up. The people remain below. They see him go up, but there's a separation that happens when they ascend the hill. Later, Moses will do the same thing at a different mountain. At Mount Nebo, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses will be gathered to his people up the mountain in a holy encounter with God. You know who gets to do that? The one God invites. God is sovereign. God gets to tell Aaron, you don't get to go into the promised land. And God gets to tell Aaron, come to me. Come be gathered to your people and enter this eternal rest. You don't get to enter this earthly rest. You don't get to cross the finish line here, but you get to come home. Now, the ancient Hebrew understanding of that would have been uh, a little more limited than what we have now with the New Testament to clarify it, but what a picture. God, sovereign in both justice and mercy. What we see happening in the text here is that the Lord invites, He actually commands Moses, Aaron, and Eliezer to ascend the mountain for a holy encounter. And in that encounter, we see God's sovereignty, we see His justice, we see His mercy all on display. Don't miss out on the idea that the, the consequence of the sin is because they rebelled. But the gathering of the pe- up to His people is God's mercy. Notice this in verse 27. The faithful servant honors God with public obedience. The faithful servant honors God with public obedience. Some of you are already spinning ahead to a gospel picture of Jesus as the perfect servant in full obedience. Good for you. Bonus points. The faithful servant honors God with public obedience. This section in chapter 20, is bookended with the deaths of Miriam and Aaron. But more significantly, more to the point, it's bookended by what we might rightly refer to as the reaction of Moses and Aaron and the restoration of Moses and Aaron. When we see at the beginning of the chapter they fail to honor God as holy before the people, that's the beginning. That's a negative. But at the end here, there is a public obedience that sort of echoes 
what we see with Jesus restoring Peter, or foreshadows, I should say, what we see in the Gospels of Jesus restoring Peter after his denial. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Well, here we see a reversal of what took place at the beginning. At the beginning, they failed to honor God before the people. Now, we might presume, I think reasonably, that Miriam's death took an emotional toll on her brothers. Now you couple that, that stress of, of grief with the rebellion of the grumbling masses and it becomes pretty easy for us to see how Moses and Aaron allowed themselves to be overcome by the flesh and then react sinfully. But similarly to what we see with Jesus and Peter, we see this reversal, the reversal of the failure by the end of the passage. Those are the bookends. After publicly failing to honor God with careful obedience, here Moses obeys God in sight of all the people. The people see Moses and Aaron ascend the hill for a holy encounter. And their obedience honors God as holy before the people. And the people see the restoration. They failed to honor Him as holy before the people. Now they see God call them up the mountain, and they see the obedience, they see the welcoming. There's a restoration here. Notice next in verses 28 and 29, even flawed servants can have a lasting impact for God. Even flawed servants can have a lasting impact for God. Despite Aaron's failures, God's purpose continues undaunted. That's the theme of the book, isn't it? Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to His promises, to His covenant. Not only that, but God allows Aaron to actually see this reality. The lasting legacy of Aaron's priesthood, though imperfect, remains ordained by God. It continues to be Aaron's line that holds the priesthood. And throughout the generations, it will be referred to as Aaron's priesthood, even though that mantle is taken from him and passed on to his son. Even though his sin kept him from crossing the finish line, God gives him this lasting legacy. The Lord humbles Aaron by stripping him of the symbol of authority, which was never his own to begin with, but delegated to him by the Lord for a particular time. The priesthood belongs to this world and Aaron is leaving it behind. We should be making that connection. He won't have that priesthood in heaven. That priesthood is destined to be limited because he's a sinful person. Every priest dies. Aaron's leaving it behind. But what a wonderful blessing to be able to see that his son will continue that ministry in the name of the Lord especially after losing two sons who dishonored the Lord's priesthood. Even weak-willed, failing people who make a mess of things, like Aaron, like you and I, can have a lasting impact as God redeems and blesses the things we do in His name. Let's, let's make the gospel connection here. Okay, so we recognize that the, the Bible is one story from beginning to end. It's God's unfolding story, and it finds its focus and fulfillment in Christ. Right? So Jesus is the hub of all of it. The cross is the center point of history. 
Everything hinges, it rises and falls on Christ. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read this text. It's a little more extended text than, than what I uh, would plan to finish up with, but I just, I'm having a hard time getting myself not to read some extra scripture to you. Hebrews chapter 4. All right, I'll, I'll shorten it a little bit. We'll start with verse 14. Man, I want to go back, but I'm going to start with 14 for you. All right, here we go. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Boy, that would be a great memory verse. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, the faith of our fathers. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters to, related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and, and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is kind of a parenthetical here. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. That's what on Yom Kippur, that's what the high priest would do. He would go in and he would offer sins for himself first, then he would offer sins for the people. But he had to get himself right first because he couldn't pay for the people's sins while he had sins of his own to pay for. Hold that in your mind as we go. Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. This verse comes up uh, repeatedly in, in Hebrews. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. <clears throat> I'm going to keep reading. I want to tell you about Melchizedek. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. It was designated by God and it was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, jump down to chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. 
Salem, you may recognize, is similar to Shalom. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Stop there for just a second. So this is happening with Melchizedek meets Abraham centuries before the priesthood of the law exists. Centuries before there is uh, an Aaron on the scene. It's before Israel is a nation. And we see this priest of God who just shows up on the scene. No background information. We don't know who this is. This Melchizedek. He is foreshadowing Christ. He is a type of Christ. And we see Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 4, just think how great he was, Melchizedek that is. Even the the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, we've been talking about the, the Levites, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So they're all descended from Abraham, and they pay the tenth, they pay the tithe, the the Levites collect that. Verse 6, this man, however, Melchizedek, he didn't trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. God made the promises to Abraham, and Abraham is blessing Melchizedek by giving him the tenth. And without doubt, verse 7, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi wasn't born yet. Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, this should, like... This whole paragraph should be all caps for us. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, through Aaron's line, or through Aaron, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Jesus calls it a new covenant. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever arrived, has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Jesus didn't come from Aaron's line. He descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That's the tribe of kings. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Other priests, others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Amen and amen. All right, there's much more for us to read, but we need to wrap this up for the sake of time. What's our gospel connection with this story in in Numbers 20? 
Jesus did for us. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus did and does for us what no other priest could ever do. The idea of a priest does not fit in the new covenant. I'm not a priest. I'm I'm the servant of the one high priest. There is one mediator between God and man. Jesus did, completed, finished, and does ongoing ministry what no other priest could ever do. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our failure doesn't have to be final. In Him, there is forgiveness, the redemption of sin. However, our salvation comes at a very high cost. Our failure isn't final, but it is expensive. It costs Jesus His very life. Our sin was placed on Him And He bore our sin and shame to the cross. God, in His sovereign justice and mercy, made Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin so that He might remain perfectly just in punishing sin and simultaneously the merciful one who justifies us and saves us from that very sin. Jesus was uniquely qualified to do that. To take our place. Because unlike us, he honored God as holy with his perfect obedience. He did not fail to make the good confession in word or in deed. And he had no sin of his own to atone for. Therefore, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He was able to pay for all ours, all of our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Though Aaron's priesthood was limited by his own sinful nature and his unfaithful choices, Christ's priesthood is not. It's not limited by sin. Sin and death dominate our flesh, so we all die. Aaron died because of sin. Jesus had no sin. He died for ours, but he rose to life, never again to die. He is ever interceding for us. Bridging the gap between us and our holy God. Without that perfect eternal mediator, we would be eternally separated from God and from the very purpose of our existence. Nothing, nothing we could ever accomplish would have any lasting significance because it belongs to this world. It's all going to pass. It's all destined to perish. However, when we're united to Christ by faith, we become holy ambassadors for Him. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood for the world on His behalf, declaring the praise of, of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're able to leave behind a lasting legacy, not because of anything we can do, but because of all He has already done. We're so easily fooled into focusing on things that don't last. They don't last because they belong to this world which is passing away. The things that cause us worry and stress and anger and pain are often worldly. We get so caught up in everything on the news. 
We get so caught up in the, the struggles that we have financially and the struggles that we have physically. All of the difficulties that we face in this world, they all belong to this world and they will all pass. Even our own role in the ministry of the church or our family. These are things that belong to this passing world. We're all going to die. We are all going to die and stand before God. Just as God did with Aaron, the Lord strips us of what is passing to show us what is lasting. Choose to focus your life, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength on what will last as you embrace and reflect the reality of Christ. As our memory verse, Hebrews 4.14, exhorts us, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As we close in prayer today, let me say that if you have questions or if you would like to know how you can personally have a saving relationship with God through Christ, we'd love to help. Look around you. There are a lot of people here who are just dying to tell you about Jesus. My information's in the program. You see me out here. Speak up. This is the day. Don't hesitate. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that that you would continue to speak by your Spirit. Do what, what the preacher's words cannot. Open our minds and our hearts. Break us, Lord. Humble us. We praise you for what we observe as, as a revival in, in these pockets around the, the country right now. As your Spirit is broken upon young people and in the, in the particular passion of youth, they have carried it forth. Lord, do this in us. Let your Spirit break upon us, Father, as you bless us and keep us, as you make your face to shine upon us. Be gracious to us in your Spirit outpouring. And Lord, we seek a personal connection with you. So turn your face toward us. Give us peace, not only now, but in the life everlasting. Father, we worship you. For all that you have done, may your name be great. As we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.